0: This episode is brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly, everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Welcome to the second episode of this year. In an age where multi-hyphenate is becoming the new standard for artists, it's interesting to note how some of us have been doing it for a while and Rajesh Mantha is an exemplary display of how to do it with grace with depth and um, with a story to boot which um, is the stuff many a brilliant novel is based on this conversation will speak for itself as is the motto of our podcast but in the meantime this is me also giving you a gentle reminder this podcast is a completely independent show so if you want to support us Go share it on your social media posts. Please subscribe to the show on a platform of your choice, preferably Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And just spread the word. Each episode is about 40 hours of work and it's all pro bono. The only reason I'm doing this is that I want to add value to the arts and education in a manner that I really missed. And probably people like Rajesh even missed during the time. I'm going to be bold enough to presume when we were in the most formative years of our artistic journey also check out the new updates on my new course CIAR the complete independent artist roadmap there's a bunch of updates coming it's almost launched and you can currently pre-enroll for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at an 80 percent scholarship if these are things that interest you go check out the episode notes and uh, Look into the details, do a little research, and in the meantime, without much further ado, please welcome Rajesh Mehda. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. Rajesh, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure. I I start off this conversation with a walk down memory lane on how I meet my guests. In the midst of the pandemic, I received this phone call from you asking me about an article I'd written on the Black Lives Matter movement in Germany in 2020. And I remember that phone call uh, lasted almost two hours. I remember telling uh, my partner at the time about this amazing conversation I just had. Uh, with this gentleman who's got this fascinating almost near unbelievable uh, life story and was like dang he should have been on that podcast like yeah I should have just recorded that phone call and put on the podcast (laughs) Um, because it is uh, quite the journey it is a very very rare uh, origin story you bring with you why don't I allow you to start where you think is the best place to start on your artistic slash academic slash scientific journey
1: first i just want to start off with how we um how i came across your your post and um how i why I reacted at that time i was doing some research on um on the black lives matter i was actually making a piece a composition called black fractals and it ended up being premiered uh about two years ago exactly september 2021 in Kwang University in Essen, as a part of the Global Trumpets Festival. So I was very busy, of course, moved like many of us uh, by what happened to uh, George Floyd. And uh, um, and it was disturbing, and I felt like it was important to have a musical response. And what I read from you was very eloquent, and, and uh, it felt very real and authentic. So that's why I reached out to you. So that's how our connection started, was through a kind of political, social response to something that was happening, disturbing, um, and, and difficult in, in the world. So um, I think that's a, that's a good way to actually meet somebody. It's an unusual way. I mean, we, this doesn't happen all the time. So um, And then, you know, you and I are both of Indian origin. And uh, I don't know exactly what part of India you're from, but I assume from the south. Is that true? Actually,
0: here's the thing, Um, not not to go off on one, but technically speaking, I'm Kirati, which doesn't really belong to India anymore. And I recently did some DNA tests as well. So I'm actually a mix of Sri Lankan and Nepalese, turns out. But Uh. my parents are now Indian citizens, and I was born in the same city you were, sir, Calcutta.
1: No kidding.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. And my parents qualify as Bengali at this point, but um, I'm not really sure I identify as one. Um, that's a whole different story. But I was born in Calcutta, left as a seven-month-old baby.
1: Okay, So I was born in Calcutta and left as a six and a half-year-old from in 1970. So that let's we can start with our Calcutta story. Nice. Uh, to the United States, my father had gone and pursued the immigrant. Story of, of getting more opportunities and work. You know, Calcutta had the stigma of being the black hole, uh, especially after the catastrophe of what happened uh, after partition and independence. And how
0: I actually don't know much about this. Could you tell me more?
1: Well, the little I know is that basically grain shipments were denied to that city and, and, and people got, um, you know, it, it, it caused incredible amount of uh, mass starvation and mm-hmm. plunged uh, West Bengal and Calcutta into into an abyss and uh, whereas it was a, it was the capital of the British Raj who I believe in the beginning of the 20th century so um, you know there can be, uh, I can get back to you about all the details but you know my, I remember my grandfather I don't know when he moved from Gujarat. We're not Bengali. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, but my father was born there in mm-hmm. 1938. So, so he lived through the trauma of that city as a kid. So That's there was a big uh, impotence for people who were born in his generation to leave and to look for better. So my father and uncle both saw better opportunities in the United States. My uncle was first in 1964, my birth year. And then my father joined him in 67, and my mother, my brother, and I stayed in Calcutta for three and a half years without him while he was studying and, and you know, getting a job in computer science. So we joined in 1970. So that was a tough immigrant story where, you know, my mom had to be with two sons in Calcutta alone, mm. partially in Bombay with uh, great-grandparents of mine as well, but mostly in Calcutta with my grandparents. Those were, you know... but. I I have to say, as far as art and intellectual life and music, I'm very proud to have been born in that city. I still think it's one of the, it's probably the most interesting cultural city in India.
0: Wow, thanks for saying that.
1: Even though I'm not uh, Bengali, I'm I feel it's a privilege to have been born in a city of such great thinkers and and artists and musicians and freedom fighters and, uh, you know, from Tagore to uh, Ravi Shankar to, I mean, the list goes on and on. Great astrophysicists who won Nobel Prizes, Amartya Sen, Mm. the uh, great economists who won a Nobel Prize. I mean, other than their accolades, it's just simply the vibe of that city is incredible. You know, I went back with my family, uh, my wife and two daughters in 2014. Mm-hmm. A kind of a roots visit. Also, I have an aunt. My mother's sister lives there. Nice. And still, still that place is, it's still such a thriving intellectual and cultural mm-hmm. hub. You know, most people will, would probably avoid that city, you know, who are traveling to India. They're going to, uh, you know, the, the, the most common, let's say, urban destinations are Delhi, Mumbai. Bangalore, Chennai, but Calcutta is something I would highly recommend uh, for anyone who wants to see India's really intellectual and cultural strength. Beautiful.
0: Thank you for sharing those thoughts. They don't get heard enough often. There's so much of history in that city that just has gotten bypassed in the recent past. Just to clarify, I did know about the the grain, well, what is often referred to as genocide, actually. But I didn't know that Calcutta was referred to as a black hole at the time. And that's the part I was hazy I hadn't realized...
2: Well,
1: that stigma, I, I don't know when this... Yeah, the stigma uh, of it.
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense now to me um, when I think back on a lot of conversations going around.
1: I think that, that sort of uh, uh, title or name for Calcutta, such so sort or of black hole or this, this description may have come around the time when Mother Teresa also really, you know, took a foothold Mm. in Calcutta and then also highlighted the the poverty. And uh, I mean, when I was a child, you know, uh, in 19, from 1964 to 1970, you know, going to school and seeing kids my age dying on the streets was quite a shock. I'll never forget that I felt the sense of injustice and, Unfairness about why I was still a middle class kid. So, relatively, we weren't from an affluent family by any means, but my mm-hmm. father, grandfather had a decent job as an accountant at the Roxy Cinema. So, we were middle class, and middle class in Calcutta meant at least you could, you know, go to a kind of a small private school and, and, and eat well and whatever. And, and there were kids my age who couldn't. So, you know, the sense of injustice and the sense of the disparity was so dark that Definitely influenced
0: my perception. Did you know it was one of the first five cities in the world to have electricity?
1: <laughs> no, I didn't. A lot of people don't. No, I didn't, but I'm not surprised. I was surprised
0: when I found out last year from a good friend of mine who's a very well known filmmaker, by the way, goes by the name Q. You might have been familiar with his work. That also kind of highlights the enormous disparity in Calcutta's cultural identity. It used to be one of the most important world metropolitans, mm. and it went from that into complete oblivion after the partition and that's actually a part of history i want to dig a little deeper into because i notice it plays a role in my own psyche without me realizing it which is why i asked you so thank you for sharing that and it's very heartwarming to hear you know hear of someone who still remembers it for uh, its core identity which was uh, a melting pot of intellectuals freedom fighters artists musicians people seem to have forgotten that it's not just india but the role it plays globally is something that's kind of gotten buried in the history over time.
1: Yeah, the Bengali filmmaker Satyajit Ray, the late. Yeah, I think you see also the the uh, Western influence from the French filmmaking tradition mm-hmm. influence on him. But you see an authenticity. I mean, he might use those those tools and techniques, but uh, the um, the expression is still very very rooted in in that city's. And that states culture. And uh, so I think it's a very easy way to get a glimpse of something yeah, that encapsulates what I think is the essence of that city. Beautiful.
0: Do you remember leaving the city and how you felt at the time? Uh, did you know you were leaving oh, the country, yeah. starting a new life?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I uh, had learned enough English to be able to write kind of broken English letters, aerograms at that time to my father. Wow. We had no phone calls, there were no, you know, at that time, it was much too expensive to have a a phone call from Calcutta to New Jersey in the United States, so I think my mom also, she had no telephone contact with my father for three years, three and a half years. Yeah. So it was all letter writing and aerograms, you know, these beautiful things where you just one page and then and through mm. it to it that you can steal mm. and I still have one. I found one that I wrote to my father. It, it's hanging on my wall. My, somehow it, Amazing. my father passed away two years ago and then somehow when we were cleaning up I I found this and it was my letter to him about how excited I was to come to the United States and join him and what kind of toys I wanted (laughs) when I got there Did you get those? Ah, I don't remember I think I got some I didn't get it all (laughs) <laughs> but it was, um, I mean, the first thing was an excitement to go. I didn't know what I was going to, but the sense of Adventure was there. Mm-hmm. And to rejoin my father. And uh, But then, I mean, going there, it was a big shock. We arrived in December of 1970.
0: Ooh, winter.
1: From the heat of, well, at that time it was still temperate in Calcutta in December, but it was warm
2: mm.
1: to snow. And I didn't know what snow was. So that was the unbelievable shock to experience cold and snow, and you know we came exactly in in Christmas season. So that took some getting used to because I I, I like the warm weather. Yeah, <laughs> I, I still do. Took me a couple of couple of years to get used to uh, Western winters.
0: When did music start
1: happening, sir? I had uh, I started first grade in New Jersey yeah. and uh, so in 1970 71 and um in fourth grade at that time public schools in the United States had excellent music programs so every kid had a chance to play let's say uh, an instrument in school mm-hmm. and uh, I think I might have heard some snippet of Louis Armstrong somewhere you know, and mm. probably on AM radio because we had nothing more than that to listen to. So when they asked, when I was 10 years old in 1974 in West Orange, New Jersey, in Gregory Elementary School, I said, I want to play the trumpet. And it started in 1974. And now what, what are we in 2023? So next year will be 50 years. Wow. Madras respect. <laughs> Do you remember what it is,
0: uh, what it was about the trumpet of all instruments that attracted you to pick that apart from Louis
1: Armstrong? Hmm. You mean at that moment or, or, or in hindsight? Can, can, I, can I imagine what? About. I think I ended up playing in public school music programs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a more of a math and science mm-hmm. oriented kid. And mm-hmm. that's probably also our cultural influence. I mean, you know, my father is a computer scientist. Right. My uncle was an engineer. We lived as an extended family. So, you know, it's not that hard. It's not a big stretch to imagine that, that the environment induced a certain kind of orientation towards math and science. So music was only supposed to be kind of an extracurricular thing, and mm-hmm. so private lessons on the trumpet started three or four years later, and also it was a question of was it really worth it or not? Mm-hmm. So, But the music programs in public schools were so strong that I just, uh, I really, really thank the American public school music programs for the fact that I got so much Time to play and it was legitimized because as long as it was a part of a class my parents could accept it mm-hmm. uh, and then I, I played lead trumpet when I was in high school I played in a 300 almost 300 piece marching band you know <laughs> that includes also people who did black girls and, and 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 choreographic stuff but I think there were at least 180 or 200 instrumentalist 70 or 80 trumpet players mm-hmm. so other than that we ended up playing in smaller and smaller ensembles you know wind ensemble and the jazz ensemble was the kind of was the dessert mm-hmm. if you really did your time in these in the marching band then you get a chance then to audition so i was a lead trumpet player for i think two or three years in in my high school jazz band and there I think I realized two things is that I I mean the lead trumpet plays the melody mm. in those kind of jazz standards mm-hmm. but I love the lyricism of of playing the lead trumpet so I, I I think I was really attracted to the melodic aspect if you think about Louis Armstrong I mean he was a singer right mm. so the song-like and lyrical part of, um, of the trumpet is, I think, what really
0: attracted me. Do you think your South Asian heritage and South Asian musical cultures, having an inherently linear approach to music, had something to do with you choosing a monophonic instrument?
1: Um, you mean, first, playing the piano or something, yeah, or uh, guitar or, a or harp or something? Um, I, I, I think it had to also to do with my mom. Is a kind of a, a housewives or let's say a kind of a, a game within the Indian community Yeah, yeah where people basically get together, these multiple families and they start singing bits of Hindi film songs yeah. and on a syllable in a way to trip the next person from not getting it. So the person who has the best ability to take any syllable and start a new song would be really revered. And my mom was, was amazing at that somehow. So she would sing, you know. She knew a lot and lots of Bollywood songs. So I remember being raised with her singing in the film songs, you know, and she had a very, very introverted voice, soft spoken woman. I mean, not a very loud or extroverted, so kind of the opposite of, of what one thinks of when, when one thinks of the trumpet. Mm-hmm. But that lyricism that I think I got from my mom singing, we were especially close in these three and a half years where my father was absent in the United States. I think that influenced me and probably, and then Louis Armstrong's this influence of the song, you know, of singing and song, uh, and probably led me to a sort of a linear instrument like the trumpet.
2: Gotcha. I ask for very
0: selfish reasons because my master's thesis uh, last year was on if well homegrown South Asian musicians don't have an inherently different oral perception of music than their global contemporaries, but you don't really qualify as homegrown South Asian per se.
1: No. No, no, I mean, I'm, I'm very much a part of the diaspora, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. India is not my only source of influence or inspiration. I mean, the United States kicked in pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But I did end up falling in love with South Indian classical music and temple music when I started taking music seriously after my engineering studies at the age of 25. And that was going very, very much deeper into this whole microtonal, melodic, and rhythmic mm-hmm. aspect of Indian music versus let's say the harmonic approach you know i felt also modern music was kind of at an impasse it wasn't really saying anything new and i had a certain instinct that south indian music especially but indian music in general had some kind of insight and maybe tools and richness and treasures that could help lead to new forms of expressions or hybrid expressions you know so indian music could uh, have a positive influence on modern music beautiful and That has happened. Mm. I I mean, I'm only one of uh, many practitioners right now who are doing really, really interesting things with uh, Indian music influences. So in jazz, in classical, contemporary classical music, in pop. And uh, I'm sure you interviewed some of these, or you've had hangs with a couple of these people already.
0: A few. Do you ever remember feeling torn towards the earlier phases of your musical experiences and education between the two somewhat disconnected musical streams you were being subjected
1: to? I mean, I noticed that there was a certain kind of bubble that I was raised in um, where I was a little bit I'd say sheltered from a lot of other musical influences that that I was going to school with, you know, whether it was rock or pop. And um, in order to catch up with those guys, and I, we only had AM radio, we didn't have AM, FM radio, and we had no record player. My school kid friends had record players, they bought records, they would go to rock concerts of Black Sabbath or, or Kiss or Yes, you know, that was all stuff that I didn't have any access to. Mm. I only heard Indian music because my mom would listen to this Rutgers University uh, Indian music channel. And then there was AM radio. So I remember one thing that I ended up doing was I would memorize everything I'd heard. So I became kind of known as the human jukebox wow. because when I was a professional musician in Amsterdam. We sat around and people started just reeling off pop tunes. I just knew so many of them because there were no records, so mm-hmm. I couldn't go back to, I to... In order to replay anything, I had to memorize the really, you know. So I recorded it in my brain's hard disk, I guess. Beautiful.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't help but wonder if these are faculties we're beginning to lose. I, I've had conversations with the musicians from different generations here. The act of getting your hands on music you know a cassette tape or a record
1: oh yeah because
0: there was so much effort involved it gave an entirely so by the time you got your hands on music you know it's like your alertness levels were going to a whole different degree because you knew that i would worked really hard to get my hands on this music and i'm gonna give it all i have when i'm listening now you'll run away from music because there's just too much of it all over the place
1: yeah, yeah it, it's true it, it's not that kind of The same kind of excitement of like going to a record store and getting that album and going home and listening to it. And that part I ended up getting uh, after I went to to university, after I went to MIT. And then, you know, I was an adult, I was 18, I could do whatever I wanted. So I got my record player and started living a kind of delayed adolescence as far as, you know, being able to do the. Mm buying records and going to concerts and then so i played a little bit of catch-up in that period of time between 18 and 22 nice when i lived in boston
0: i can't help but wonder if that's a common pattern amongst south asian diaspora as well because I, I i know i think i've definitely experienced something of a delayed adulthood in some ways if not adolescence I sometimes feel like my life's always... I feel like I'm living in my 30s and my 40s and my 20s and my 30s and so on. That's what the pattern feels like. I'm guessing, and this is obviously a personal opinion, a lot of it has to do with the overprotected environments we often tend to grow up in as diaspora because um, our parents are probably trying to... might have tried to protect us in a way, uncommon for our local environments.
1: When you're a kid, you always think like, you know, what you're not getting compared to the kids around you. And um, mm. when I look at it in hindsight, if I uh, moved in my life, also mm-hmm. with my family, and have mm-hmm. raised two adult daughters, mm. it's challenging if you come from a multicultural situation. Let's say you come from India and you're raised in the United States, and now I have actually three continents to deal with because I've been living in Europe. Mm-hmm since 1991 with 10 to 12 years in Asia built in. But, Mm -hmm. you know, my wife is German and I live in Germany, so I have India, Germany, United States, let's say primarily to compare. Mm -hmm. I think it's not easy if you have that much cultural, in a way it's a privilege, right? You have so much, uh, such a cultural range. I don't think everybody has that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's a real challenge to, for, a parent absolutely you figure out you know how do you filter that how do you how do you give how do you make choices within all that all those possibilities and i think that's also why what you talk about delayed adolescence it's just you know you're discovering stuff at a a different time than other kids do who are raised maybe more in intact you know monocultural environments which which is completely valid and fine i have not nothing uh, uh, but appreciation yeah, sure, for, sure. for all kinds of mm. uh, biographies but you know we we get to experience certain things a little bit later if we want to we make yeah. the choice and say okay I
0: come safely with
1: you there i want to know what it was like to be a 14 year old kid who could buy records and so i did that as an 18 year old So what so what
0: so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I can't deny the privileges of multicultural background or upbringing comes with. But I do want to say and because I do feel people tend to forget that it's also double or triple the work. Mm-hmm. If you have a tricultural or bicultural background, there's also three different personas you have to process and kind of integrate into your life in a way that is not schizophrenic. Cultural schizophrenia is a thing, it's not mythology. I've dealt with it firsthand, and it takes a lot of processing. And it's an ongoing process. It never really stops, because the situations, I almost said paradigms, but I overused that word, they keep changing. So
1: sure. I mean, the, the the feeling of being, let's say, different, and of feeling a little bit alienated comes very easily to people who have that many cultural influences mm-hmm. or backgrounds. Um, it's kind of ironic, so, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Because in a way, you'd think that you have such a wide range of cultures to choose from on the other hand in order to feel embedded in one culture whichever one you're living in you need to really feel Let's say you have to know the local language you have to know the local mm. cultural practices and stuff like that so i mean and that is in my biography there's been multiple times for having to oh, yeah. relearn
0: how many times was it you went from india to us to asia to uh, like southeast no, no, asia and
1: no, no, europe? No. no i went i went from india to the us yeah. and then there was a basically uh 70 to 1991 so kind of 20 20 plus years mm-hmm. and then i went for a music tour to europe i was invited mm-hmm. so that's when i had my first professional music tour after doing four years of work in acoustical engineering and running a math and science tutoring company and studying composition with anthony braxton all this happened from 1987 to 1991 so then there was a a trip i had in 1986 to europe and india Mm -hmm. and asia for the first time i got a grant from mit um, to look at jazz in france i put a proposal in find out why jazz musicians were better received in europe than the united states (laughs) And I expanded that to different parts of Europe, to different jazz festivals. I had press passes from, you know, major producers. So it was great. I was very fortunate to get a really inside. I got to meet some of the greatest musicians, Miles Davis, Wayne Shorter, Lionel mm-hmm. Hampton. And then I ended up going back to India, and that was 1986. But that was the first time since 1970. So that was a long, long stretch.
0: So the first time as an adult.
1: First time, I think one of the reasons I couldn't go earlier because it's very expensive. You know, you get half price tickets, I think, until you were 12 or something like that. And then also at that time, I was starting high school, which was very competitive and it was important for me. So there was basically no opportunity to go to India, although 90%, 95% of my family relatives, you know, my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles, 30 or 40 cousins all lived in India still.
0: (laughs) I have a free gift for you my friend, no strings attached legit free gift. What if you could have your entire career as an independent musician presented to you on one page, all of the aspects you needed to be aware of starting from creativity to collaboration, stuff. Most musicians are a little less privy to like PR, other aspects of music business, down to self-care and a very lucid display of how all of these elements are interlinked what if you could have one page which gave you an overview on all of that I can give you that page and it's up for a completely free download please go check the episode notes you'll find a link there one page an entire overview of an independent musicians career and in case you wonder why I'm doing this I want to build an ecosystem holistic, happy musicians. Musicians and artists who are building their careers in a fulfilling manner on their own terms. So if this is something that resonates with you, go download the Artist Roadmap.
1: So when I went back in 1986, after I graduated from MIT and got the grant, did the jazz in France thing for the summer, that was a huge cultural shock for me. I really, if you talk about really feeling split... I felt a strong, strong connection to my, my grandmother especially and mm. but I felt totally, you know Oh god yeah. I was like I was an alien and uh, oh, hard relate. There was a chasm there that was took a long time to bridge. And I would say that I didn't have a musical tool at that time. I mean, okay, I you know, I played jazz and but I didn't have a connection to Indian music in any profound way. Mm. That, I think, helped me when I started to go back to India subsequent and, and regular and, and more frequent trips um, mm. as of, let's say, 1991. Then I discovered uh, South Indian classical music in 1989. And then I went, I kind of had a mission to find out as much as I could about Carnatic music. And uh, that gave me a bridge to being able to heal this, or, or to bridge this chasm, Brilliant. that split was healed. I think a, a part of the hard thing for, is that you're always kind of going nostalgically back to something that actually doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's very vague. It's you know, you only have little bits and pieces of memories and flashbacks into <laughs> stuff, and it's very hard to get a fulfilling and satisfying feeling of connectedness. Mm-hmm. But it took a long time. You know, I'm 59 now, so. I would say the feeling of also even being here in Germany and feeling like I don't need to go somewhere else, that this is really a good epicenter, somewhere between my two countries, India and the United States, that that all only kicked in really post-pandemic in the last year, year year and a half.
0: Gives me hope. I left my childhood in London, actually. And I went back to India as a nine-year-old kid, learned the language from scratch.
1: Which language did you speak at home?
0: Well, mostly English mostly English. And uh, the first six years of my life were spent uh, living between London and Libya. The first language I spoke was a mix of um, Hindi, Bengali, English, Arabic, and Turkish. Wow! It was literally like my own concoction. And uh, it was a concoction only my babysitter, who was Turkish in Libya and an Arab country, and my mom would understand. And I thought it was perfectly fine to speak that language until uh, I'm in Calcutta. And next thing I know, I can intimately relate with the conflicts involved now because um, it is so much to deal with because it feels like there's me, there's my mum who I want to hang with, spend quality time with and in the middle there's India and, it's, it's, and uh, this... Enormous uh, um, cloud of information, which is so much work for me to process, and all I really want to do is just hang with my mom. Mm. Uh, does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, sure. Uh, sure um, it does. I, I don't have that same scenario. Mine's a little bit different. My mom's in, in New Jersey. Oh, good for But you. Uh, but but the United States is not a not a joke of a country to to. You know it's, in, it's also in its own way overwhelming i mean yeah. uh i just went i just came back my mom just turned 86 on october 18th so i flew in for her birthday beautiful and uh, she's a widow now because mm-hmm. my dad died two and a half years ago so but um, this was probably the first time that america didn't get overwhelm me like mm-hmm. the way you're speaking about how india overwhelms you and i felt well you know, seeing her could really spend quality time with her and uh, um, and be comfortable in the United States. So, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of work. Yes, to cook all those ingredients in in your life's dish. Yes,
0: the phase of your life you seem to have attained though is very helpful for me. I want to let you know. So, yeah, it gives me hope.
1: It's called aging.
0: <laughs> I, I, I would contend it's called maturity. <laughs> Uh, which is not always uh, in is not always proportional to age in my experience. Let's focus on your music. Sure. Um you address white supremacy very strongly with your music and your art. Will you tell us more about this?
1: I don't think that that's that's, a, that's a accurate description. I've only a fraction My music tends to fall more into let's say uh, art music areas without let's say too many political or social let's say I mean, I may do this more. I mean, I think it's very important to to Mm -hmm. deal with these sort of themes, and especially about racism, which I, and I'm sure you and many others have experienced. Mm -hmm. That's an aspect of growing up in New Jersey, which was pretty tough. Uh, At that time, when I was raised, uh, there were very few Indians. Mm. It wasn't until I went to MIT where in Boston it was much more international. There were lots of Indian students and that I felt a lot of people of color, you know, that I felt a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, at home. My work outside of, let's say, pure art music, I have a new CD release called Malagasy Breath on Subcontinental Records. The producer's name's Arun mm-hmm. Latarajan, and he, you know, has produced the CD with my Sky Cage Quartet and the uh, singing of uh, Madagascar and Lemurs. So this was a project about the environment and ecology, and um, someone sent me a video a couple of years ago about these extraordinary monkeys <laughs> from Madagascar who are endangered, and they're incredible singing. They've been doing 10 to 20 decades of research. And so I just got this article, and I saw the video, and I thought, oh, first of all, this was unusual because I have a I have special... Uh, trumpet innovations, one of which is called the Naga Phoenix, the slide trumpet with valves and the microtonal slide. Yeah, yeah, I want to dig into that in a bit. And and what I heard from these monkeys was exactly the register and the range with their gosandis and the way they sing of my Naga Phoenix. And uh, so it was really uncanny that I had an instrument that could actually in a way imitate these monkeys. So what I did was within 10 minutes of Getting that article and hearing that, I immediately overdubbed, and I became the third monkey to be uh, accurate. They're lemurs. So I took these two monkeys that were in dialogue and I became the third monkey, and I added and sent it back to the University of Turin at Max Planck Institute and said, hmm. "Can we collaborate? because I'd love to do something that is about the environment and about these endangered, unbelievably beautiful creatures. They're extraordinary singing i mean they sound like electronic machines it's so touching to listen to them so they they responded and say you sound like the third monkey we would love to do a project we will give you our sound archives that whole thing led to multiple grants that i got from uh, music foundation berlin and uh, the structural grants that allowed me to work remotely with my sky cage quartet and my musicians are Two are in Berlin, and one's in Hamburg, and I'm in Duisburg, so we had to coordinate that. But so that just was released at the end of August. That's another new direction. It's almost an interspecies. It's not a real dialogue because they're not interacting in that way, but it's about us. That record has just come out, and uh, a solo record, a vinyl of, of uh, recordings I did as a guest professor at the uh, Norwegian Theatre Academy is called Naga Seven. Both of these are released by Subcontinent Subcontinental Records right now.
0: Brilliant. There is a very relevant chunk of your work, though, in the middle, which I find is incredibly fascinating for me anyway, which is you were an electrical engineer and not just a random electrical engineer. You went to one of the premier institutes in the world. You went to MIT as an engineer and managed to diversify that entire path onto that of an artist and went on tour as a jazz musician to Europe. That's not the kind of thing people do every day. (laughs) What happened there?
1: It's an interesting. Uh, I studied electrical engineering at MIT, but I, I got a joint degree and I studied humanities as well. So, they, MIT was offering a special degree uh, in humanities and engineering. Mm-hmm. Major universities were doing that, like Stanford or Harvard, or, you know, um, so they decided to make it a more well rounded education for basically a hardcore technology institution you know at that time we had 80 percent i think men uh when i started in 1982 Mm. i always loved music in high school and i loved languages also i mean i really also loved english and, and literature and so for me it was a little bit odd to be so in such a narrow kind of uh program of just studying engineering without all the other things. Luckily, the music broke, uh, connection was really strong because MIT had a um, top arranging teacher, an amazing uh, a guy named Herb Pomeroy, who's the head of the festival jazz band at MIT. And he was at Berkeley, which was just across the bridge from MIT's campus. Right. I started thinking classes at UC Berkeley. And there I found uh, a treasure trove of, of humanities and philosophy and psychology classes, things. So I ended up getting a joint degree in history of ideas and electrical engineering. And graduated in time, thanks to MIT approving of that. So, but I, anyway, the bug of California and Northern California bit me in Berkeley and I ended up moving there. Also Berkeley's, you know, politically and socially progressive I met a guy who was doing a master's in contemporary music at Mills College, and he was studying with Anthony Braxton, this brilliant jazz musician, composer, avant-garde uh, African-American musician. Um, and he invited me to, to meet him, and uh, that led to basically me becoming an auditor, doing all those things that I mentioned professionally, running a math and science tutoring business, which was growing very well. I ended up hiring people because it just people liked the, the quality of the work, uh, and I continued the acoustical engineering lab work I did. Uh, but um, then I started studying with Braxton. I would go uh, once a week. I started to experiment with the trumpet and started to take a look at it as a, as a machine and started using my engineering skills and per- perception and taking the slides out and looking at how sound, how, how first of all the air moves throughout this, this instrument. What happens if you take a slide out? What happens if you, if you play and then you, you put a piston down and, and the sound comes out of a disconnected slide? All this led to you know understanding the physics and the acoustics of that instrument and I started making extended instruments, uh, trumpets, hybrid trumpets and, and, and so That has been uh, a part of what I'm known for is is to play hybrid trumpet innovations, which I've custom designed or have had people, instrument makers make for me, like the Sly Trumpet in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And they all have a certain function in basically reproducing, also extending the sonic range and the acoustical possibilities of the trumpet so that I can make noise there. So I have a whole range of instruments Two notable ones is the slide trumpet that I told you. Which
0: you said that's made in Singapore.
1: An earlier version was in 1998. The higher frequency you go, you, you, you go on the trumpet, the more, let's say, malleable it is. It's easier to do glissandis, even without, let's say, slides and all.
0: Before we go there, though, um, but we have a whole bunch of questions from the audience, which, which I don't want to leave unaddressed while they're still around. Okay. I'll go with this because it's most relevant to your current album. It's on the video. Love the visual art. Jazz musicians don't tend to do that as much. It's rare to see a video with such beautiful visual aesthetics. I I agree with how beautiful it is. I'm not sure all jazz musicians don't rarely do that. But uh, you want to tell us a little about the video?
1: Is the question about about the visual art or is it about the, the video?
0: What was your inspiration behind shooting a video the way you did? By the way, I second this uh, person's um, opinion. I-, I love the video. I-, I do agree. It's rare for videos to really kind of visually represent the essence of a music the way this
1: did. Uh, I mean, to be really fair, the, the brain behind all this is Arun from Subcontinental Records. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's an amazing producer and this guy is really brilliant. Mm-hmm. To talk about the music on that video. I made a recording in an extremely dark mausoleum in Oslo five years ago Mm. uh, when I was a guest professor doing a music and architecture workshop. And I did a a recording in an over-acoustic, very dark cave-like space with art, with a fresco. Amazing. I I did a demonstration for the students, the sonography students, to show them what acoustics, you know, so this is again, you know, music and architecture and the acoustics of space. So and this extremely, you uh, know, highly reverberant space would only allow for a certain kind of musical expression. So I did one Raga-like uh, thing, more melodic. What you see in, in this music video is one of the two solos on the vinyl, Naga 7, which has uh, been released. Arun, he knew of a, of a professional filmmaker in India, and this was the word of Sharat Pola, the, the filmmaker, who basically took footage in Rishikesh, they asked me for uh, footage of me playing, and so I went to my local botanical garden here in Duisburg, Germany, around the corner, which has uh, bamboo trees, and uh, Amazing. it just kind of blends so well, and in India, because of the bamboo, and uh, Arun is, he's, he's such a smart. I hope you're listening, Arun, because, you know, I love you for, for your, your creativity. So All credit goes to him.
0: Well, so music inherently has become such a visual culture. I do see a lot of musicians from early generation struggling, think it's it's a great example of how to make that connection. Um, this one's interesting. Your experiences as a South Asian jazz artist in Europe.
1: Mm, it's gone through different phases. So my first experience was in, in, in Amsterdam. And uh, I met my wife there, who's a studying uh, soprano at, at the conservatory and she's german but you know one thing led to another and we made our i made my first home there so i was kind of you know integrated into the into the dutch musical environment do you speak dutch as well i i learned i didn't speak that much uh, but yeah i can understand dutch gotcha. and now that i know german quite well uh dutch is much easier for me gotcha. uh, but um, and then, um My uh, elder daughter was born there in 1996, and then we moved to Berlin. There was a horrible moment in 1998 where immigration, complex immigration situation was in in Holland in general. It was a threatening moment for me and for my family. Luckily, I have an American passport, and she was German, and I was getting a lot more work in Germany anyway, and and playing in Berlin and, and other places, so it was a logical decision to go from Amsterdam to Berlin. So that was my second home from 2000, uh, no, 1998 to 2005. So these are two roughly seven year periods each, one seven years in Amsterdam and seven years in Berlin. And this is my, let's say my third phase in Europe. I came back from Asia, which I longed to live long term. To be very frank, I thought, I wasn't getting really what I wanted exactly from Europe, Mm -hmm. even though Amsterdam and Berlin are two unbelievable cultural cities, and I'm grateful for those experiences, but I was still not convinced yet. Um, I would say that my feeling of being in Europe as a musician now, having this South Asian experience, uh, having lived there for uh, uh, 10 to 12 years, and gotten that out of my system is far more positive. I'm much more at peace with being here I'm happier to be exactly where I'm at in the world and, and physically. So I don't have any problem with being in Europe now, which I did before I went to Asia. I did have some, some uh, it was a little bit more complex, but I think I needed that. Uh, ultimately, when it comes down to it, I really needed to experience Asia with my family. Gotcha. This is a much, much more, I had a legitimate, let's say, qualm about Certain misunderstanding that I felt, or, or a certain kind of. There was also a lot of racism. Uh, in, you know, there were neo Nazis that I met in Berlin and stuff like. I mean, you know, uh, un- uncomfortable things happen. But I can also say that if we, as people of South from South Asian origin, have a different attitude, things open up. Or let's say you 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 live that part of your Asian need, like I got to. I got the privilege. I mean, it's a real privilege to have been able to do that then um, things can change. And uh, so I started taking also learning the language much more seriously in the last couple of years and to integrate here more. And so that's done me really well. A little bit, I would say I'm a little bit of a late bloomer with being integrated, uh, but, you know, better late than never.
0: Do you ever get mistaken, I ask because it's happened to me, do you ever get mistaken as uh, black?
1: Oh, a lot, often. Mm. Especially because I don't have any hair anymore. Which I think is a which is which is a compliment for
0: me too in a way an uncomfortable compliment uncomfortable because I remember this uh, one time after a gig an audience member came up to me and said you look too black don't you think you should wear clothes that are more appropriate for your ancestral culture
1: oh yeah we can do a whole podcast on all our Yeah, no, no, no,
0: that is not what I'm getting at though. What I'm trying to get at is, and this is my experience as a jazz musician with roots in South Asia is, I recently played a residency at um, the 70th anniversary uh, Deutsches Jazz Festival. And I've been doing the research, I'm talking to some people at the festival uh, to confirm but the last time anyone of south asian heritage played at that festival was 20 years back and that was trilogurtu oh i have noticed that european jazz especially in germany because germany is one of the biggest markets for jazz does have a very eurocentric lens on jazz which is either like European jazz, which has Nordic influences and that whole movement, or it has to be like a very, very American thing. It's American classical music. So I've really had to really pay my dues and really deal with a very specific brand of struggle to kind of find my place in um, jazz circles doing what I do. How has your journey been? Was the acceptance easier for you to come across?
1: Um, Well, one of the reasons I left was because I didn't find enough critical mass, I would say, of that kind of activity within, let's say, with the Indian music influence. And mm-hmm. in that phase, when I lived in Berlin and Amsterdam, I didn't get enough of exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. However, now I don't operate only in the, let's say, the pure jazz world. I would say, you know, there is a connection to contemporary classical music also, because there are a lot more, let's say, people who also improvise who are, let's say, in, in the new music world. Yeah, So there's more of this sort of uh, uh, seamless uh, uh, movement between people who do contemporary classical music and, let's say, avant-garde improvised music and jazz. So Mm -hmm. I think there is a very positive aspect here. I think there's a lot of work to be done. I'm even considering thinking about the institute that I abandoned in Asia and whether there is some kind of variant of that possible to manifest here in Germany and in in Europe Mm. if it got the support that it needs it could make a certain kind of contribution in this whole nexus of topics you know and to try to anchor something and to give it a certain kind of uh, profile and visibility but there are good things that are happening but there isn't a kind of cohesive center for that And I think it's probably something that is necessary because there are too many people who are just doing their own freelance gigs and all struggling with their own personal stories. But when you add all those personal stories together, there's quite a community of people who are doing things. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you identify as and how does that influence your approach to music? I'm going to make the assumption that they're referring to cultural identities here. So do you identify as American
1: I consider myself an Indian American whose home is Germany. So um, I'm not German and I'm not European, but obviously if my home is here and I've been living abroad since 1991, I haven't lived in the United States since then. You know, Europe has had a profound influence on my thinking and, and the way I live and the way I raised my good children and the way I do my music. Mm-hmm. So I would say I'm definitely Europeanized but Mm -hmm. i'm an american Uh, i'm still an american passport holder and i'm of indian origin so
0: and last one uh thoughts on raising multicultural kids how has your journey been as a as a parent with the very
1: diverse wow my god i i I would love to have my daughters on on this one are they around they're happy to be welcome No. To that, well one's in Berlin, but mm. he <laughs> can come over to your studio and always welcome I mean, I love being a father and, and raising for me this dimension of becoming a parent and becoming a father was was such a gift for me as a musician and as an artist. I felt that there's it's two there's two much of a kind of tendency to be egocentric and narcissistic, I think, within Music and artistic world, anyway, and I think what happens when you have to raise children, or in what happened, especially in my case, is that it really stretched my my consciousness of taking care of other beings wow. um, and raising them as you know their mothers German, their their grandparents are German and Indian, yeah, their cousins are American, and interestingly enough, they have German and American passports now and Indian OCI card, so kind of permanent green cards for India In a way, my My goal was to give them all three cultures, and this was our shared goal, it was not only my work, obviously, uh, raising these girls, but was to give them, to expose them to all three of their cultures, you know, India, Germany, and the United States. And I think they've gotten... All three. They haven't lived in the United States, so that's still something maybe in the future for them to decide. But linguistically, of course, you know, I spoke English and with, a, with an American accent, so they also have that. And uh, so they sound a little bit like me mm-hmm. when they speak English. There have been different challenges. Depending on where we, where, you know, I raised them, whether it was Berlin or in India or in Singapore. But it's been a fantastic, sometimes difficult, but it's been a great journey. And I feel privileged to have the opportunity to also really look at three different cultures and to have daughters who are connected to three different cultures.
0: Sounds beautiful. I'm sure they'd be happy to hear that.
1: Well, we'll see. (laughs) They're tough minded, independent adult. Brilliant. uh, Brilliant women. And, uh, I don't take anything for granted. You have to ask them directly.
0: I would. I wouldn't have it otherwise. I do remember that you telling me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that at least one of your daughters were homeschooled and both of them have incredibly successful academic careers as well.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, they, they were both homeschooled and that was something that I kind of, wow. that's where the guinea pig stuff kind of uh, so, Wait,
0: both of them are oh, completely homeschooled all the way? By me. Whoa, yeah. why did we not talk about this
1: earlier? Yeah, well, because that was a, uh, that was the reason why we could stay in, in Asia. Amazing, Quite an exciting journey, which also made our family come together and, and be a, a kind of a very symbiotic unit for a long time.
0: Quite an inspiring story. Indeed. Mad respect. We have run out of time. I have one last question, which is something I ask some of my guests, not everyone. And this is like a mission statement slash question kind of a thing. Uh, As you know, this show is called, show, I call it a show now, I can't believe I call it a show, it's not a show, will this hang? This podcast is called Tapasya Loading and tapas refers to a sacred fire, loosely, loosely translated. If you were in front of a sacred fire today, what would you want to burn away?
1: Ego. I think ego creates, manifests, you know, what Indians call Maya, illusions. And I think ego is a very complex So I wouldn't say burning the ego, but but certain manifestations of the ego. I think we can all think a little bit less of the small self and a a lot more of the larger self. And I think, I mean, I remember the word tapas as a yogic exercise and it was actually a technique that yogis used to burn their inner ignorance and a part of it was the egocentrism. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, I think I, I stick to the ancient yogis. Put the ego in this right place. There's a place for it. That's that's a lifelong focus of life.
0: Thank you, sir. It's been an absolute honor and privilege. Thank you. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. Having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon.